So um, welcome everybody to the inaugural event hosted by the Oxford Forum for Questioning Extremism on the repatriation of extremists. We're delighted to bring you a fantastic panel to discuss the moral, legal and security grounds for returning citizens who have traveled to Syria to join the terrorist organization, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. No doubt this is a topic that is both sensitive and controversial, but our aim as a non-partisan organization is to provide an honest, respectful and open discussion on the issues of our time to generate some light, not heat. We would like to extend a big, big thank you to our sponsors for this event, T45, um, a new news service providing the facts that we need in this age of misinformation. Throughout this event, you in the audience will have the opportunity to engage with each other via the chat bar on the side. Just like the panelists, we are encouraging you to converse with one another as the discussion develops. Our discussion will last around 45 minutes with um, 10 minutes left at the end for questions. So if you praise, press the raise hand option in our last segment, I'll be able to unmute you and you can pose questions directly at our panelists. It's now my pleasure to introduce our panel of experts. Um, we have today Dominic Caschiani, Home Affairs correspondent for the BBC who throughout his career has reported extensively on security and terrorism. Dominic will be a fantastic contextual guide in this discussion. We have Mohammed Tasneem Akunji, the lawyer for the families of the Bethnal Trio, that is the three schoolgirls, one of whom of course was Shemima Begum, who left the UK in 2015 to join ISIS. We have Rashad Ali, senior fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Rashad is a leading counter-terrorism practitioner and an expert in radicalization and reintegration. We're very lucky to have him on. We also have Robin Simcox, director at the counter-extremism group. Robin is a specialist in national security policy and counter-terrorism. He has testified before Congress on multiple occasions on issues related to ISIS. It really is a glittering selection of CVs. Thank you all for donating your time to come onto our platform today. We're really grateful to have you on for our first event. So without further ado, let's get started. Um, I think context is essential for this discussion. So Dominic, I'm gonna to defer to you. Could you provide us with an overview of the background that kind of frames the proposal to repatriate sure. ISIS foreign supporters? Sure, thank you very much for inviting me. And thank you for all those um, who've joined to listen to in on this topic. Um, look, I'm not gonna express any opinions. I'm a BBC journalist. My job is to kind of just try and get facts out there and leave others to form their view about it. But um, uh, the one opinion I will give you is uh, those who've bought a license fee, thank you very much because it keeps a roof over my head. Uh, and those of you who haven't, please go and buy one um, because you know, we do some terribly good things. There you go. That's my plug in. Let me let me talk um, in very brief, broad terms about the issue here, because my my fellow panelists here, you know, because they they, they are, you know, day in, day out practitioners in this stuff. They all have a lot of the nuance and, you know, the very, very deep stuff, which I'm not going to go into. What we're talking about is some, an absolutely phenomenal moment in history between effectively roughly 2013 and 2019 with the rise of what became known as the Caliphate and its destruction uh, by 2019. And over that period, roughly 40,000 people from almost every part of the world went to fight in the Syria and Iraq region. Now, when you break those numbers down, it's, 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 it's quite remarkable to look at where they came from and, 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 and what dragged them there. You had 7,000 or so, sorry, a big problem. You had about half the numbers came from the Middle East itself. Some of that was legacy issues uh, from the Iraq war. Some of it was from further afield from other theatres as well. About 7,000 people came from Eastern Europe. A lot of that was linked to the Caucasus and, and, and about enduring 
uh, jihadist issues in that part of the world. 6,000 from Western Europe, and within that, about 2,000 people, uh, uh, fighters and their families uh, from France. The UK, about 950 people, we now think. That number's kind of crept up and been slowly developed and nuanced over the last few years by the security service um, and, and, and other security officials in Whitehall. Now, when you look at those 950, I think this is where it gets interesting in terms of what happened to uh, them. Um, around half of the 950 UK nationals who went out to the, um, the area which became the country, who effectively went out as foreign fighters to join IS or other jihadist groups, around half of them came back. And that's probably because they came back because they weren't actually as engaged as they thought they were going to be by the time they got there. And a lot of them came back in the early days. And I've met some of these people down the years, people who put their head up above the parapet and talked about effectively going out and, you know, a little bit of a complicated situation, what went on there. Maybe a third of them are dead. They actually got involved in fighting and they lost their lives. Of the remainder, it's very complicated to know what's happened to them. Some of them are in refugee camps, some of them in detention. The uh, Syrian Kurds, for example, have been holding about a thousand people. Some of them escaped to other parts of the region, and some of them are still on the loose, uh, effectively on the run from, uh, from security services in, in areas around northwest Syria where it is still exceptionally chaotic. So you've got this big problem out there of what you're going to do with all these people, not just the Brits, but people from other countries as well. Now, clearly, the powers that be in the region don't want these people there, but that then poses a problem for the countries where these people have come from. Washington, for instance, wants the countries involved to take these foreign fighters back. Turkey wants these people out of the region as well. It's a big problem. What do you do with them? How do you deal with justice in this, in this situation? Now, there are then also practic practical issues. If you wanted to bring people back, or you chose to bring those people back under, under some form of kind of international sort of obligation and duress, how do you practically do that given the dangers involved in the region? How do you reintegrate somebody when you get them back to the country they came from? And how, if there is potentially evidence available, are you going to prosecute them given it's very difficult to actually bring somebody to justice for a crime which has committed, been committed potentially on an, in, an entirely different continent? Now, I'll give an example of this. And, uh, a few years ago, I and colleagues were thinking about where, where's the furthest we can travel on a, on a reasonable budget for the BBC to find somebody who travelled to join IS. And it happened to be Calgary in the western part of, uh, of, of Canada. So you're the police and security services in Canada. It's going to be very, very difficult for you to obtain a lot of the evidence you need to prosecute someone worthy to leave Syria to go back to, to their home city. So those are some kind of the issues there. Within that, you've got countries doing different things. France has taken back a few. The Danes have tried to reintegrate people. The Brits have had a slightly different view. Um, while some people have clearly been allowed back into the country and have been allowed to reintegrate, there has been an enormous effort to keep others out. And the most, you know, most well-known example of that is the row which is going on all the way to the Supreme Court of Shamima Begum and whether or not she presents a threat to the UK. The UK keeps people out through a number of means, disruption powers, including cancelling passports, stripping of citizenship, and also a power that prevents British citizens coming back in temporarily until they abide by certain 
uh, restrictions on their freedom so that the security service and the MI, uh, MI5 and the police can keep on top of them. So that's kind of what you're looking at in terms of the framework there that sets the question. Very, very difficult problem, pretty much unprecedented in world history where you've had so many people from so many different countries landed in a region to fight and then the fight has gone against them. What do you do with those people afterwards? Thank you very much, Dominic. Very, very informative. Um, Tasneem, can I refer to you now, please, to um, make your position known? Sure. Well, um, my position is less global and more specific in that, um, you know, I was tasked with trying to help the, the families of three girls from Bethel Green Academy get back into the UK, uh, um, um, albeit if they're prosecuted or or simply just return. Um, of the three girls who went out, only Shamima Begum remains alive. And as we all know, she had a citizenship stripped. Um, the task is, you know, my focus is, is to have her back into the UK. Um, and the argument uh, that's been levied by the Home Secretary is that she's not conducive to the public good. One of those tools that Dominic simply um, just referred to was the stripping of citizenship. And that's what's occurred in, in her particular case. Um, in terms of people who've gone out to join ISIS or other groups and then return, um, it's right to say there are large numbers who've gone, um, but it's also important to know that they may have gone for various different reasons. Um, some of them are men, some of them are women, and some of them are actually children. And also out there are people who are British citizens by dint of their parentage, uh, but were actually born out there, conceived and born out in, in a war zone. Um, so when we're talking about returnees, we're talking about quite a different a diversity of people and people, some of which are very dangerous indeed, upper echelons, strategic fighters, strategists, uh, bomb makers, people who've gone out there and skilled up um, with a very particular um, anti-Western view and certainly one that uh, caused them to leave the UK in the first place and go and join uh, an organisation at a given time, let's say 2015, 2016, with the height when ISIS was expressing its negativity towards the West and indeed engaging in uh, terrorist acts. But then there are others who went out to the region to maybe fight against Assad as sort of a just cause um, and have been caught up in that in that scenario. And then there are the women and children who some of which are are going to be uh, entirely innocent. So we have these we have this range of individuals, range of people who are out there, many of which want to return, and, are, and my position is simply this, is that have them assessed and deal with them accordingly. There's evidence against them, prosecute them in the UK, because frankly, there's nowhere else to prosecute them. And, um, and if, if not, then uh, assess them in terms of a security risk and try and reintegrate them. Um, in the, at the end of the day, there are citizens and there are problems. Thank you, Tasneem. Um, Robin, could you now um, give us your thoughts on the matter? Yeah, um, thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation. Um, it's a, a fiendishly difficult subject, this, and obviously only got a couple of minutes, so I'll try and make, uh, I'll, I'll be somewhat reductive in my, in my comments, and I'm, I'm kind of happy to flesh any of them out during the questioning later. Um, my contention is that in general, government should probably assume the worst about some of the foreign fighters at this point, being the returning from ISIL territory. Um, many travel to join... ISIS and live in Islamic State-controlled territory, fully aware of the atrocities that were being um, committed there. I don't buy, to be honest, that, and you still hear this argued, that they were necessarily naive or brainwashed. 
Um, a lot of them now have conflict experience and terrorist training, and many, we should remember, have already proven themselves in the past to be dangerous. Um, Brussels first suffered casualties from foreign fighters returning from Syria, as someone called Mehdi Namouche, who fought for ISIS in Syria, shot and killed four people at the Jewish Museum in Brussels in May 2014. Uh, sell of primarily French and Belgian ISIS returnees from Syria killed 130 and injured almost 400 more in coordinated attacks across Paris in November 2015. And my thought, first response to the security threat shouldn't actually be reintegration and de-radicalization initiatives, which have a very patchy track record. Instead, it should be a focus primarily on the rule of law. Um, the priority should be prosecution, taking potential terror threats um, off the street uh, for as long as is legally possible and, and necessary. Um, as Dominic says, prosecution rarely takes place for various evidentiary reasons, um, and we can go into more detail on that. But I think, it's, I think it's the best option because foreign fighters shouldn't be absolved of responsibility for their choices. Um, an emphasis on prosecution doesn't mean there's no place for DRAD initiatives. A successful counterterrorism strategy is going to have multiple components, and obviously, children born in the caliphate or children who had no choice about being taken there in the first place are obviously a very different, uh, a very, di very different cases. But overall, I think governments have to prioritise public safety um, because we need to be not only thinking about the present threat, also that that may um, arise in the future. Because I mean, Syria was unique. But it's also not the first conflict that serves as a magnet for foreign fighter travel. It's part of a broader trend. Um, and generally, European, and I'd say the West more broadly, Western states stood idle um, as multiple generations of, of Islamists traveled to conflict zones across the world, from Bosnia, Afghanistan, Chechnya, Somalia, Yemen. And we, they did so with very, li uh, very little legal accountability. And I think that doing nothing in these circumstances has consequences as well. And the kind of tolerant attitude towards foreign fighter travel that existed prior to Syria um, has allowed the problem to, to mushroom. And, and, and the attitude towards foreign fighter travel, I think, has to change because at some point down the line, there's going to be another Syria. There's going to be another center of gravity for foreign fighter travel. And effective government policy only goes some way in helping to deal with the blowback. I think we also probably need a bit of a a mindset, sh mindset shift among wider society and not look to provide excuses for foreign fighter travel, but instead stress that if this is an act that people, um, if this is something that people do, there are going to be very clear legal and societal consequences for it. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, finally, Rashad, would you give us your opinion on the matter? Yeah, thank you first for inviting uh, me to speak on this panel. Uh, with the people here. I think uh, a number of ways to view this. Uh, first of all, I do not think this is the first of this type. Like Robin said, there has been various uh, points of uh, which have attracted people to go and join various causes. And I don't just mean the romanticism that people at George Monbiot show uh, when he described it as people like going, you know, like, you know, almost like they're taking up arms against fascism as uh, George Orwell did as an example. I remember The Guardian had some kind of romantic piece like that. But actually there have been conflict zones which people have gone to and been drawn to, whether it was Bosnia with the massacre and the genocide that was taking place 
uh, by the Serbs or whether it was, um, you know, to repel the inv invasion of the Russians in Afghanistan. There have been various different conflicts. Uh, we have taken various different political perspectives on each of these conflicts, and therefore we have turned um, a blind eye to or encouraged or discouraged different people joining different conflicts historically. What there has been, and this is probably a point I defer with uh, on some of the things that have been said, is there is clear guidelines legislatively and policy-wise that state very, very clearly what people can and can't do. So going to an area which is controlled by a terrorist group, joining a terrorist group, affiliating with a terrorist organization, fighting alongside or merely being a member of is a crime. So there is already existent legislation on these things. Um, and therefore there should have been a very clear perspective on where we stand. I think there are questions to be asked about policy failure or implementation failures at a broader level. Via uh, the security question, I agree. The biggest question really is security. And I don't think their security is maintained or our security rather is maintained by not knowing where these individuals are. I think it's a very simple thing to say that, that we are safer and more secure when we know when they are, and ideally when they're in the custody. Um, the primary focus, I agree that we have a counterterrorism strategy, we have legislation in place, and that should be implemented. The rule of law should be fundamental and basic, which means individuals that do return, if we can prosecute them, we should prosecute them. And actually, there's some mythology surrounding the other European countries, uh, like Denmark, etc. They have exactly the same framework as us. If you have an individual and you can prove crimes they have committed, they will be and have been prosecuted. It's just that they're proselytized a lot more about their wonderful uh, repatriation, reintegration programs that they have. And I'm fairly familiar with this. We've implemented similar programs in places like Lebanon, um, so it's you know based upon and alongside the Danish government. So it's not that I'm unfamiliar with the nature of their programs. It's probably that their propaganda about what they're focusing on is better than what they actually do. Uh, and lastly, I think uh, when it comes to this, and we are, you did mention this in your introduction, um, we are missing a big context here, which is this is not the problem of Syrians and Iraqis. They've kind of suffered enough of several thousand Europeans going over there on their imperialist jolly to go and join these proto-fascist organizations like ISIS to go and fight. Uh, and many individuals have suffered the consequences of this. We owe it the minimum to them that we will take back, you know, some of the failures of our society like these individuals and prosecute whatever the next steps are engage in accordingly. And I don't think it's fair to say, well, we're not going to take them. So um, let's just leave them to the US to deal with. Thank you, Rashad. Um, thank you all actually for um, making your thoughts known. I think the first question we should kind of discuss is the, is the security based one. Um, is it a greater threat to national security to leave these individuals abroad? Or is it, do we take better owners for it by bringing them home? Um, how about who would like to start us off? I'll kick off with that if you don't mind. Sure. Sure, I think that question has been answered actually by the British government already recently with the 
Hashem Abdi case, in that that's a, a UK citizen who was the brother of the guy who um, who engaged in the in the Manchester attack. Uh, he was born in Manchester, fled to Libya uh, before the attack itself, was captured in Libya, extradited back to the UK, faced a trial, and I got 55 years in prison before parole. So I didn't really understand the UK government's position with Shamima Begum when they say that someone who's a woman with very little evidence about anything she's done other than going out to join ISIS is left out to, to rot in a refugee camp. Um, whilst you have somebody who's a very serious, credible threat, someone who's been proved to be a credible threat, who's been hunted down in Libya, brought back to the UK, and then prosecuted. So clearly, Mr. Abdi was much more of a threat uh, on any scale than uh, Shamima Begum. But also to take Simon uh, Robin's uh, point about rule of law, I think that's the most important thing, particularly from a, a legal point of view, is the rule of law. And the idea that we bring people and prosecute them according to evidence is a very fundamental, fundamental basis of rule of law. The problem that I have with your um, logic, Robin, is that you assume that anyone who's gone out there is a very serious threat, and therefore, you know, the rule of law shouldn't apply. They should just be assumed to be a threat. And that's been the fundamental problem I have with um, the approach the UK government's taken with people like Shamima Begum, is that it, it's a one it's a one brush stroke that tars everybody on the same level. Robin, would you um, like to respond to that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean the the assumption of the assumption of threat. I mean, obviously, I mean, it, it goes without saying that, or, or maybe it should be said that there are there, there are different levels of threat from different returnees. I mean, obviously, the there are there are some people who have proved themselves to be a threat foreign fighter-wise, there are others who have obviously returned and, and not um, carried out an, at an attack or anything like that. So obviously there are different threat levels. But my assumption or my, uh, I, would, I would portray it more is that I have a low threshold for risk. And I have a low threshold for risk because we've lost an awful lot of lives in this country over the past few years to terrorist attacks. And so um, I do have a, I do, my, I am cautious on this subject. I may yeah, I make no apologies for that. I am I am cautious for it, and and that's part of the reason. You know, we're talking a bit about um, people stopping people returning from to the country from the UK perspective. I think we also have to look if we if we have to look at this as the security side of things, and then there's the if we kind of look at the politics of it. Obviously, there are not many Home Secretaries that are going to put themselves out there and say we want to bring people back that we assess to be a security threat. So if you just look at this from a political point of view, it's a tough sell in many ways, which I understand people may not be content with that on a human rights perspective or a judicial perspective, but it is going into the mix and in the way in which these decisions are made. To come back on that, that I mean, you're talking about the Home Secretary who herself took the political risk of sitting uh, against her own um, government's wishes with the IDF and promising the IDF uh, UK foreign aid funds to support them. And this is whilst the IDF were actually providing small arms to rebel forces in the Syrian conflict. So effectively supporting ISIS and the ilk with arms. So the idea that there's a political risk that this particular Home Secretary isn't happy to take, well, that, that's a, a difficult swallow with pretty to tell, I think. 
I wonder whether it's actually interesting to bring in public opinion um, before the framing. It, there's a sense I, I feel that um, many in the public just don't like the idea of somebody going out to join ISIS, violating UK law, and then being allowed to just be returned at the taxpayers' money. Um, would anyone like to contribute to a discussion on that? Can I, can I just actually throw in a few... Um real examples of other Brits into this, actually just to help sort of frame the debates. You know, th th these are real world examples of where people have come back. Um, so the first one I was going to mention is a woman called Tarina Shaquille, um, who was from Burton-upon-Trent and she went out to join IS and she came back. And in 2016, she was jailed for membership, basically a membership of a prescribed organization. She hadn't been a fighter. She'd gone out basically you know, to um, to get herself a husband, and uh, in doing so, she supported the organisation. Now she came back and she lied to the authorities about why she'd come back. They didn't trust her, so they went for her, and she paid the price by going to jail. So that is an example of actually how someone can be brought back, where there's no evidence of involvement in fighting, but the support, the moral support and the material support she gave actually led to the sentence. Another example is a man called Imran Khawaja. Uh, Imran Khawaja went out to fight during the early stages. And in fact, he was seen photographed in some absolutely horrific scenes uh, on social media. He faked his own death to come back to the UK and slipped back into the UK. It was simply not clear what his intentions were. But the authorities, just, you know, they managed to get enough together in terms of evidence to actually charge him, largely partly because of the stuff he put out on social media or you know, uh, friends of his have put out on social media about what he'd been up to. So there are routes to getting these people who are have been in Syria to getting them actually physically into the into court, but it's very very difficult to do because gathering the evidence out there is is enormously difficult to do. Now the interesting thing is, of course, is once they're jailed, ultimately most of these people at some point are going to then have to come out of jail, and then that's that's where. You, 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 you have a real issue about the management of these people afterwards. And that's, you know, I, I suspect Robin, Robin's point on this, you know, this kind of place to Robin's point about the risk factor in this. But there are ways of getting these people into the country and then getting them into jail as well. Yeah, I think that's actually a very good segue. If we could talk a bit now about kind of the blowback rate and the idea that those who return are going to commit um, crimes again. Um, Rashad, would you like to start us off on this? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things uh, just before I uh, uh, before I comment on that. Um, firstly, uh, it is true to say that uh, um, Priti Patel was providing aid on behalf of, I think it was uh, differed uh, without full disclosure uh, to Syrian opposition groups, which wasn't ISIS or Al-Qaeda. I think it's just important to bear that in mind by the IDF, because I think it's just, there seems to be this general, a generalization about Syrian opposition as though uh, ISIS and AQ form the opposition. Actually, most of it is not that. Uh, and on that point, it is more complicated. The individuals that went out to Syria from 2012, 13, 14, uh, are, you know, were very different necessarily to the ones who went out with a specific intent post-2014 to go and join ISIS. Um, they are very, very different, and it's important to bear that kind of context in mind as well. 
Uh, on that note, we have been dealing with people that have returned from conflict zones um, in our de-radicalization efforts for some time. Uh, we've formalized that process now, um, both in terms of looking at the, the psychiatry of these individuals, the psychology, the ideology of these individuals, and seeing can they be de-radicalized, can we remove the ideological motivations, can we remove the social psychological uh, motivations, and can we provide a safe place uh, for them to be reintegrated within society. That is a general issue with all types of uh, ideologically inspired criminality of all persuasions, uh, whether it's far right, whether it's Islamist, whether it's, there's going to be more and more of this kind of mixed ideology or hard leftist individuals engaging in political violence and so on. So I think uh, in that sense, we do have a large policy framework and set of laws a very, very specific, well-developed process to do so. That doesn't mean that it's infallible. Of course it's fallible because we're dealing with human beings and rehabilitation of human beings, uh, which is notoriously difficult uh, and poses a lot of different challenges. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that just because something poses challenges or is difficult that we don't do that. Our entire legal system is premised upon a set of principles that makes it difficult for prosecutions to take place because the idea is the burden of proof lies upon the one making the case. In practice, obviously that is different, depending upon if, you've, if you're found with a knife in your hand and blood dripping down, then you need to explain that circumstance away. But essentially the idea is the burden of proof lies on the state in order to prosecute. That's the same in all matters. The issue here is the emotive nature of the discussion. The emotive nature of the discussion is when we're talking about individuals who are maybe are not repentant, who are very, very clearly, you know, when you speak to the individuals, they're very, very clearly still hostile uh, to our society. They very, very clearly have desires to commit heinous crimes, and some of them have done so where lots of lives are lost. And so the emotive nature of that discussion can sometimes blind us to it. And it is true, what Robin said, that actually 70% of the British populace seems to not want us to repatriate these individuals, at least in some of the surveys. And so politicians are stuck between either sticking by the principle of the rule of law or giving into the mob. And surprisingly enough, uh, giving into the mob is easier, especially when there's a very difficult security challenge to face, which they don't really know how to deal with, let's be honest. Because some of the challenges we haven't discussed are things like, you know, how do we, in a situation where we're fairly sure individuals have been affiliated with terrorist groups and we can't prosecute them because of all sorts of evidentiary criteria, what can and can't be used as evidence, you know, how do we then mitigate the security challenge in that circumstance? Uh, these are real questions which involve things like balancing the individual's rights and the safety of a wider society and community. Um, and that is a difficult question, and people have various views about all of those issues, as well as understanding, yes, like any other criminal who needs rehabilitation, de-radicalization is a very, very specific thing that requires our efforts and focus, and it isn't exactly something that we have a large history of and a long science of generations handed down of successful de-radicalization programs to look back on. Um, just coming on that, I, mean, I, I was involved in a, in a trial too with a fellow called Khalid Ali, who had joined the Taliban, stayed out there uh, for some seven, eight years. 
uh, became a bit of a bomb maker and came back. He actually he actually came back on um, on uh, UK issued travel documents and was then monitored in the UK, left to his own devices for a while. Um, eventually, appeared to uh, engage in a what was a proto-terroristic act, which was which was uh, stopped fairly early on. But but he was managed very very successfully by the security services in the community. Now it took a lot of resources. I think that that's one person. The problem with the ISIS um, paradigm scenario now is just the scale of the problem, the diversity and the scale of the, the number of retainees that may potentially come and how to manage that with the resources that will require. Now we've, we've all seen um, how some of the people in the camps are, are behaving. That's been on, on, the, uh, on our TV screens fairly regularly and the hostility towards you know, everyone other than the people in those camps is pretty palpable. I mean, some of those, some of those camps, the uh, uh, sort of the remnants of ISIS have been murdering their own because they're not, they're not, uh, they're not ICC enough really for their own tastes. So we, we do have a scale issue here as well, um, and I think that that's really the biggest problem. I think if you deal with any individual, um, you can very quickly form a view. A reasonable view around what sort of capacity or uh, or danger they pose, but if you suddenly have to take six hundred people back of all different varieties, I don't I don't know. Maybe Rashad can help with what our resourcing around even assessment of those people would be like, and where would they be kept? So I completely accept that in this particular scenario, there is a th th there is a problem with our our legal. Um, the legal rights owed to those people versus the scale of the problem being dealt with all at the same time. And, and if we do slow that down, well, where does that triage process take place? And for us, the very obvious and simple thing to do is bring the kids over, or the orphan kids over as quickly as possible. There's just simply no, there's no excuse for leaving children in that scenario. And then thereafter, you start working up the ranks in terms of families and uh, you know, women and children, and then to the really pernicious problem of the, of the men or some of the more senior women. But I don't know what that triage process would look like. It doesn't look like there's anywhere stable, um, that outside the UK anyway, that would be willing or able to take that, take that task on. Can I, make a, can I make a point on your blowback question? On your blowback question? Absolutely. Um, I think we've got, to be, we've got to be aware there's differing forms of what blowback could look like from returnees, right? So when most people think about this, um, for understandable purposes, their mind goes to returnees carrying out terrorist attacks, killing, injuring people and, and ruining people's lives. But that's not probably, that's generally not the thing that we should, that's probably not the most common concern, I think, we, or at least the most common concern we should have. If we think of past conflicts, I think of a conflict like Bosnia, for example, in the early 1990s, there were people that returned from that conflict who obviously were never prosecuted and never carried out a terrorist attack, didn't really present any threat to life in the UK. But they, the gravitas that they earned and the credibility they earned through taking place in that conflict enabled them to radicalize a whole generation of others in the future. Um, I think a specific example of this, if, if we need one, is somebody who was um, pleaded guilty to terrorism offences in the US after a long extradition fight, which was somebody called Barbara Ahmed, 
who fought in Bosnia, returned to the UK, became one of the very key radicalizers in the UK, specifically in, and especially in South London, um, was eventually extradited to the US and convicted of terrorism charges there. But there was never any suggestion that Barbara Ahmed um, was planning a terrorist atrocity in the UK or anything like that. But he was a returning fighter who was able to inspire others to go to training camps, for example, uh, in Afghanistan and join Al Qaeda. So there are different forms of blowback we should be aware of here. So coming in on that, Robin, I'm just a bit, a bit concerned by that approach because you've taken a temporal line that's decades long where there were completely different laws in place along those ways. Uh, no offence in the UK was committed, um, but you have one individual who has a particular history and then you're using that one example to say, well, actually, this, this may apply to so many others, therefore we should exclude an entire class of people. Um, that's a very, very tenuous argument really. what do you mean exclude an entire class of people well if people have gone abroad for whatever purpose we don't know what purpose that is barbara Ahmed went to fight we know that but if there's you know shamim Begum went out to become let's say a housewife or does she fall within the category of the same thing that barbara Ahmed may may have gone on to do that we assume that she's going to go and do the same thing with uh, no, we don't assume, and I, I think I said at the start of my my preference as well is, is prosecution um, in these cases. But we have to be aware of what has occurred in the past, and we can't just assume, we can't just think of this as who is going to come back and try and commit a terrorist attack. The point I'm making is that there are various forms of security uh, threats that present themselves, and not all of them look like suicide bombers or, or people trying to kill people with knives or, or cars on the streets um, of the UK. There are people who act as pernicious influencers um, throughout different communities in the UK and they've used their, um, we know from past examples, there are, there are past examples of people who have used their credibility from foreign fighter travel to inspire others to do the same. I think it's a thing that's worth considering. Mm -hmm. um I can't be certain about this, but I may be the only person on this call who's actually met Barbara Ahmed. Um, I, I, I fought a very long court case against the government for the right to actually go into prison to interview him because I, we, we thought his case was so significant. And I, th and I think the point about the Barbara Ahmed case is, is taken from the starting point of a man who actually went out to fight what he saw as a just war in Bosnia in, in relation to saving lives of people who were in the middle of an awful um, you know, potential genocide and humanitarian crisis. The case against him was that he effectively became a founder or popularizer of jihadism in English in the UK and then wider through the internet as well. And that was where he was seen as a threat. And it wasn't necessarily what he was doing in terms of actually actively trying to organize attacks. There was never any evidence of that. But it was that was where the fear was around him. So I think in some respects, um, it, it's, it's slightly, it's a slightly different issue to those who come back to actually do attack planning. So the point is you have people come back for different reasons and different motivations and to do different things and how you actually manage those people. That that's a very practical issue. Just coming back to uh, just another point that, uh, from, from Tazler on Khalid Ali, you know, Khalid Ali spent a long time with the Taliban. When he was arrested, he was carrying three knives and charging towards Downing Street. You know, so that was a man who clearly had violence in his heart at that point, and which is why he'd been followed for an awful long time uh, by the security service and the police. So 
it's very it, it's, it's very very difficult to put everybody into one camp when you actually look at evidentially at these people but there is no doubt that if you're going to kind of conceive of risk there is risk in relation to each individual case and i think the, one of the problems we've had with the begum case is in terms of the information in the public domain we just don't know what the risk is that the home secretary believes that she presents to the uk we haven't actually seen that evidence yet it's not come out in any part of the trial yet so it's a very very difficult question for us to actually factually answer actually what what it is that makes it such a risk to the uk A very a very interesting point. Um, one one thing I want to uh, get your thoughts on is this um, suggestion that a international court should be set up to deal with all foreign fighters in the region, um, possibly with Nuremberg-esque trials. Um, is something like that practical? Would we have enough states who want to sign up for it, or is it completely contingent on U.S. and U.N. foreign pressure? Well, I think the SDF would be um, happy to consider it, or were, would have been happy to consider it up until when the Americans pulled out. However, yeah, no, nobody in the region will allow that to happen with the SDF, who are, because uh, that, that would be their first step towards a proto-state of Kurdistan if they'd use that to argue that. Um, at the moment, you have the, sort of the Iraq pathway uh, of 10-minute trials and chopping your head off afterwards. Um, so the region doesn't lend itself to uh, a great deal of credibility for standards of evidence and, and, uh, and balance of, uh, of, uh, of proof uh, being established. So I guess, I guess a Nuremberg style thing would have to be in, in, in a jurisdiction that has um, some track record of providing standards of proof, uh, evidential considerations and fairness. Um, and I don't think anyone anyone in those jurisdictions or the available jurisdictions is stepping up to the mark to offer themselves up so far. Yeah, just, just to comment on that, I think Tasneem's put that very diplomatically. Um, essentially, you're talking about uh, Syria and Iraq here. Uh, Iraq, which is dominated by uh, Iranian regime influence, where the means of justice, as he mentioned, is a, a pseudo trial for a few minutes and then uh, execution. Um, or, you know, in Syria, where you have literally 700,000 people slaughtered by the regime, about 100,000 within the prisons set up of just Syrian people. I don't think we can rely on these regimes. And the problem with having a Nuremberg type trial set up is that they would be the regimes that, you know, the Iranian Khomeinist regime and the Assadist regime would probably be a bigger kind of fear for them than individuals who've gone and joined ISIS. So I can't see them buying into that. I also saw a document somewhere where the, the proposal for um, the Iraqis to, to deal with these issues, that the bill that the Iraqis were demanding were, was $2.6 million per individual. So... Um, yeah, <laughs> not exactly palatable. <laughs> and something else to discuss is um, public opinion. Um, we've touched upon it briefly um, over the course of this discussion. 75% um, of the public, I think it's surveyed recently, said that they were against um, repatriation. Um, 
I think some professionals have described it as political suicide to initiate some sort of program which has so much opposition um, in the public arena. So is it the case that any policy of repatriation would have to be contingent on some sort of foreign pressure when no government would seemingly be rational in deciding to put something like that forward and probably disenfranchise their electorate? Well, the thing is that there are consequences to not um, fulfilling international obligations. So, for example, again, going back to the, the Shamima Begum case, where you have Bangladesh as a nation where the UK, uh, the then Home Secretary, has imputed that um, Shamim Begum is a Bangladeshi national despite never having been there. Um, well, the, the Bengalis and, and the, uh, the government of Bangladesh are not very happy about that position. They, they don't see why they should take on the, uh, the negatives of uh, individuals from another state just thrown at them by virtue of, of their parentage, really, or their heritage. So eventually that can work in reverse then, um, where those governments, let's say there are prisoner exchanges, they just won't happen, where uh, a national from the UK who's in the UK can elect to go to Bangladesh to serve their sentence out or Pakistan or any of these other countries. That, that will simply stop, really. Um, you, 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 we have an international framework because it overall suits all of our purposes in order to, um, you know, country purposes in order to function as a, as a, as a world. But the minute where we start saying, well, we're not having, having foreigners come in here because they're not conducive to the public good, uh, fair enough. But then when you say, well, we're not having our own and we're going to foist them on others, well, then you, you can't have your cake and eat it without consequence. And there will be consequences. My question then is, is it the government's responsibility to make those consequences known to the public? Well, the government's job is to govern, really. Um, so we have a democracy and that informs us in terms of the, 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 the timber or the colour of the, the policy colour of the government that's there. But ultimately, they're supposed to make a decision. Now, at the moment, we seem to have a government that's, that, you know, that's policies dictated to by right wing media, really, at the moment. And that's not serving us too well, really. Um, it is the responsibility of government to make decisions, be they popular, be they unpopular. And governments don't always pander to public opinion. If we did, we'd have the death penalty 30 years ago or reinstated tomorrow, because the majority of the public would happily reinstate the death penalty when it comes to paedophiles, maybe terrorists. So, I, I don't think Pretty Patel's against reinstating the death penalty, just for the sake of the record. Well... Uh, I think you might well be right. Um, we're just going to come to questions from the audience in a moment. So if you have any, please get ready and raise your hand um, in a few minutes time. Um, another question I kind of wanted to ask was about of um, the issue of eventually releasing certain individuals. We've talked about those who commit to the most heinous crime. Surely the only compromise there is that they're in prison indefinitely or for life. Um, but for many, they will be released. There's a certain issue that's often brought up in security literature, and that is of radicalization in prison. Um, we've got two counterterrorism practitioners here, um, and I just wanted to explore a bit more the kind of efficacy of de-radicalization programs. Perhaps, Rashad, you can start us off. So I think the problem with the whole discussion about the efficacy of de-radicalization programs is it's built on so much background information, it's really hard to address properly. 
So I think the first thing is people think, uh, what are you saying? You're saying that we can talk to these people. They say, okay, I believe you. I no longer want to go around killing people. Ergo, we take it from them. They have changed. And so we just release them back into the into the populace. So this is the kind of caricature of what de-radicalization is supposed to be. Um, actually, it's, it's not, uh, at all anything like that. What we're talking about is how do you make assessments of a person's cognitive, behavioral, uh, psychology? How do we look at the way they think, the way they behave? What are their motivations? What is it that stimulates them and so on? Can we make a proper assessment of those things, uh, whether it's people who are specialists, whether it's their psychiatrists and psychologists, whether it's by gathering lots of information about that individual with, from the various people that have interaction and touch points with them, whether that's a specialist interventionist, whether that's someone who's engaging in ideological engagement, whether that's the forensic psychiatrist who's making the analysis, or whether that's the information provided by guards, etc. Um, so there's a whole complex process for that type of assessment that takes place. That doesn't mean it's infallible again, it just means that it's much more complicated than people think, or as is presented. Um, secondly, in terms of uh, dealing with this, some of the problems have been that, you know, in order to create the right environment where this can take place, uh, often you need, there are various different sentences that uh, are more or less um, conducive to, to producing an environment where a de-radicalization or disengagement from violence can actually take place. Just simply put, for some people, longer sentences have that effect and that impact. Uh, for others, it is the case that you need a combination of uh, dealing with them, dealing with the them as, an, as a holistic individual and being able to work on uh, disengagement and ideological de-radicalization. And that is something that, uh, yes, we have done successfully uh, with hundreds of individuals. Um, and there hasn't been recidivism, they haven't gone back into it, or gone in, even gone back into those circles where they are now interacting and engaging with radical elements. So it's not that there's no evidence for this, it's just that it's very difficult to put together in a way that uh, fits a simple snapshot for a tabloid argument, if that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, I think on the, and I think just on the, on the kind of practical level of how Governments are meant to be or trying to deal with prison radicalization, which obviously is an issue that is not, not by any means restricted to the UK. I mean, in the UK, we've taken an approach with um, what were assessed to be some of the most dangerous influences in prison, that there's these separation centers we use now. So the um, some of the inmates assessed to be the most influential, the most dangerous, um, and, and there's a question about how you define that, but but certainly the most influential have been put away from the rest of the prison population because they don't want them to, the UK authorities don't want them to be on a, a, an influence on, on the rest of um, the inmates in the prison. You've got a country like France, which took a slightly different approach for a while, where they tried this experimental um, approach where they took people who have been convicted of terrorism offences, but they assessed to be at the, at the less radical, less serious end. Um, in a separate part of the prison. This was an experiment they tried, I think, in 2016, I think. Um, and they gave them classes on religion, access to psychologists, skills classes and things like that, and made an effort to try and begin the reintegration process. And what happened was that 
the people that they'd assessed to be less radical kind of conspired together. And one of the individuals, a guy, a guy called Bilal Targ, um, stabbed one of the prison guards and said he did it in the name of the Islamic State. And so I don't say that to, um, to criticize the French way of doing it because we're all trying to figure out the best way to deal with what's a really, really, um, really tricky problem because the consequences, I mean, you've seen this, we've seen this happen in the UK over the last 12 months. A terrorist attack occurs and it's somebody who's previously been in prison and all sorts of questions are asked about well, what the hell was going on in there? Why wasn't he being tracked afterwards? It becomes, it becomes um, unbelievably messy. To be honest, I just don't think we have the answer yet to the best way to deal with this. We're still trying to figure it out. Coming, I mean, there are just, yeah. in any given population, there are just some nutters, really. And there's nothing you can do about that. Really. Um, pick any particular group. There are some absolute lunatics out there. And that's just the risk of society, really. Um, you know, they're, they're from any particular ilk. And until, until our, our, you know, we start framing this in terms of going out on the street, you can get hit by a car, you could get, you know, there are, there are terroristic people of all sorts of different ilks out there. And there are just straight up criminals who, cloak, who, who, have, who have a desire to kill and actually cloak themselves in a political message in order to give them credibility. Those are two very different things. Somebody who's religious and then is then motivated to, uh, through a political cause, do something versus a complete killer who's cloaking themselves in a religious garb in order to justify his uh, murderous um, nature. So uh, I, there, there are no answers for a very small group of people. And that's something actually that um, the, the psychologist who wrote and devised the main scheme in the UK himself said, um, Chris Dean. Um, so he, he wrote the system which was in place um, when uh, Usman Khan, who carried out the Fishmongers Hall attack, um, which, you know, and in which he killed two people, that he went through before his release from prison. And what Chris Dean says, we, we interviewed him at the beginning of this year, was that, you know, talk of a cure misses the point. There are some people, he says, a cure is just, just, just a bogus kind of explanation of what goes on. There are some people who look like they're making progress, but they will then regress because they're, the unique nature of their personality and their psychological and, and, and psychiatric makeup. He says it's a very, very complex thing. So you, 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 the, the idea that you can actually cure these people just simply isn't the case. So if you, you know, factor that in with the stuff that Robin's been saying about the different ways of actually managing these people, you know, where, do you, where and how do you warehouse them? It's, it's, it's not quite clear to me in the, you know, the work we've done as journalists that, the, that any nation anywhere has actually found an answer to any of these problems. Hmm. Thank you for that. Um... So now I'm going to defer to a question from the audience. Um, we have a raised hand here. Um, Sean, I'm going to ask you to unmute yourself and you can ask your question to the panellists. Thank you very much, Evening. Hope you can all hear me okay. Um, and first of all, thanks for a really, really interesting discussion. Um, I should declare a, a, a brief interest. I'm a prevent coordinator, so I was really pleased to hear the panel talk about the the efficacy of our DRAD and our disengagement efforts. Um, but my question revolves around the security implications um, in the sense that we've talked a lot about what the risk is of bringing individuals home and what 
that might mean for uh, security in the UK and how do we mitigate that risk? How do we assess that risk? But what do the panel think could be the security implications of leaving these individuals in situ? And would that have any short or long-term implications for the UK? Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Um, well, I mean, one of the um, one of the implications is happening right now, which is that people are escaping from these um, refugee centres. Uh, some some through smugglers being paid for, others just through failures in security, and they're disappearing into the ether. Some some portion of them are being recaptured, um, but you have to remember that a place like Al Hol um, wasn't designed for 70,000 people to be housed. And the, we're relying on um, a ragtag rebel group to maintain security, which is the SDF. They're, they're, not, they're not trained particularly um, in, in, um, in guard duties. They're not trained in, in, even particularly militarily. Uh, having been out there, so some of the people on guard duty are illiterate in their own language, really. They're not particularly uh, well equipped as well. So... The, the threat of those places hemorrhaging out is very, very real, and it has already happened. Uh, you know, our whole hemorrhage a lot of people when the Americans, after the Americans left. Um, those people may disappear back into Syria and could pop up anywhere, but the, the other issue is that, well, one of their, all the children there who've been effectively dispossessed, that's a problem that will grow. Um, you know, those children being educated not by any teachers, but by the people in those camps who are a very concentrated group of, um, of, of the most hardcore um, sort of ISIS adherents. And, and that's, that's a problem that's not that far away. You know, some of these kids are seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Now you can imagine in less than a decade, you'll have, you'll have people who are young adults who have no history anywhere and suddenly um, start appearing in different places with a skill set that no one can even begin to fathom. So I think, I think the problem is immediate and also medium term. I would, um, I'm going to answer this in a slightly different way and say that, I mean, obviously, could we talk a, a, a bit about the, the security implications? I think one of the things that also probably is not talked about as much is it also has geopolitical implications. So um, the Americans are deeply unhappy with Europe on this, the attitude of um, we are because essentially the Americans are the ones who are fighting the bill for the camps and often um, involved one way or another um, with their with their running. Certainly have influence there, and the US, the, the fact that European governments, not all but most, have been so reluctant to take any of their fighters back is of, of significant concern in, in Washington, and I think is a um, it's a split between Europe and the US that should get more attention. And I take another thing. So, for example, we've just had the um, we just had the uh, the Brits um, who have landed in Virginia this week to uh, receive trial in the US to British ISIS fighters. When um, when the Americans started getting lectures from the British on exactly how exactly the trial should take place and things around the death penalty and you know and, and obviously the, the US government was uh, with respect for those concerns and took the death penalty um, off the off the table 
it doesn't do much relations between the US and Europe when you're when you've got European countries who a aren't willing to take their citizens back and b when America starts doing the job for them starts lecturing them on how exactly the trial should take place I understand why Europeans have can I understand all sides in it I understand why Europeans governments aren't keen to take their fights back because they've already got such a big security threat but I think you also got to understand from the American point of view that they're not wild about the status quo either so there's the security implications, but I think there's also the geopolitical side, which we could, which we sometimes forget about. Very yeah. interesting consideration. Yeah. So um, sorry, to, sorry, Rashad. I'm that. gonna have, I'm gonna have to cut. I'm gonna have to cut you off because we are just running over, and I, I just want to allow one more question from the audience. Um, Emily, I'm allowing you to talk now. Hi. Um, I just want to say thank you. But um, what's the situation like regarding repatriation of Western secular fighters who went out to fight against ISIS with groups such as the PKK, given that the PKK is deemed a terrorist organization by the EU? I suppose I'm asking whether governments are more likely to repatriate these individuals than individuals who went out to fight with ISIS. Are they more likely to take these individuals back and then prosecute them as opposed to trying to keep them out of the country? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's been a problem with um, with those people coming back. Um, they, they, no, I don't think any of them admit to fighting with the PKK. They, uh, they tend to say that they were with the YPG, which is not a prescribed organisation, but was set up by the PKK. Um, I think the only the only example of one who was successfully prosecuted was Aidan James, I think. And the only reason he was prosecuted was because he was in a camp where there were PKK fighters as well as YPG fighters. Uh, but that's the only successful prosecution. There have been a number of arrests, I think four or five now, but those, uh, but those prosecutions collapsed. So um, I, don't, I don't think there's actually a, a, a big issue around that. Um, also, when the YPG were fighting against ISIS, a lot of their endeavours were supported uh, by the RAF as well. So it's going to be somewhat difficult for a prosecution to be successful when the alleged offence is one that was militarily supported by the uh, Royal Air Force. But uh, there we go. Would anyone like to add any further comments? Absolutely fine. I think we'll wrap up there. We've just gone slightly over, but thank you so much to all of our fantastic panellists for lending their expert opinion today. It's been a real pleasure. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our sponsors, T45. Um, we're going to be back next Friday with an event on electoral interference, so be sure to tune in then. And um, Thank you all for joining and goodbye. <laughs>